this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. If you're anything like me, you've heard the term ESOP, but you may not know the details of what an ESOP is and how it might benefit your company or restrict it in certain ways. My next guest, Wayne Colonna, was involved in the ESOP at ATSG, which is acquired by ETE Reman last year. And Wayne does a great job of trying to demystify an ESOP and again, shares with you both some of the benefits, but also some of the downsides of having an ESOP. Here to tell you the entire story is Wayne Colonna. Wayne Colonna, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this company, Automatic Transmission Service Group, or ATSG, what did you guys do? Well, our company um, is multifaceted in, in the sense that it serves the automatic transmission industry by providing technical information and assistance. So we, we write technical repair manuals, um, not only how to um, overhaul or rebuild the transmission with all the proper procedures and specifications. But we also provide a lot of technical diagnostic information. Uh, we reverse engineer quite a few aspects of the of the automatic transmission that OE doesn't make available, such as hydraulic. I find this so fascinating because I've often wondered, like, how does the local repair shop, car repair shop, with so many brands and so much technology, how do they, how do they actually fix stuff? Like, if you bring in your, you know, your 1999 whatever Ford Mustang, they got to be able to fix the transmission on that car, and then they got to turn around and, and fix a 2013 Honda Pilot. The next, like an hour later, and the, the, the technology is so different. I would imagine. I'm not a car guy, as you can probably tell. But the, this is yeah. this is how car like car car repair shops survive. They subscribe to to, to information from companies like yours that allows them yeah, well, to kind of diagnose it. Yeah, exactly. And it and it has been getting quite challenging with today's vehicles. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, it has. And so we uh, we also do have a technical um, helpline where members can call in and we help diagnose them for those problems. We help work them out. And when we start seeing trends, we have our own little complaint uh, cause correction format. We turn them into TSBs. We do seminars all around the all around the world, in fact, and um, and help to try to keep them up to date or aware of the things that we're seeing, the problems that are happening. Got and it. there's nothing better than knowing a problem before it even comes in. Yeah, for sure. So your subscribers or your members, as you call them, are uh, independent auto body shop, auto shops, auto repair shops mostly, and, and general repair shops. Is that correct? 
Hey, mostly uh, specialty shops, automatic transmission shops that have branched out into general repair. And okay. we do have general repair that call in to help uh, diagnose some issues. And what does a member pay to be a member of ATSG? It's, a, it's about $700 a year. $700 a year. And it's on a subscription. Yeah. Or, or yes. you, know, you build them once a once a year. Do you build them annually or monthly? Well, they can they can be billed annually. Um, we do have quarterly payments available to them as well. It's a little bit more money. Got it. So you've got these members paying you money to subscribe. I love it. I love the membership component, the subscription component. You know, was it always a membership? Has that been, I know the, the business goes back to 1985. Has it always been a membership or did you make a transition to the membership model at some point? Um, well, initially when it started, it was just doing uh, seminars. And um, as the people attending the seminars grew, uh, it then turned into a subscription-based type of organization and the technical helpline and technical bulletins and things started to follow thereafter. Yeah. Got it. So this is super helpful. So when did it move to more of a subscription membership model? Like what, roughly what years? It actually took place a year after it started. So it began in 1985. By 1986, we were getting subscribers. And how did you maybe talk about, we were starting to be, talk about it off the air. Tell me about the story about how you came to run ATSG because actually you didn't start it uh, as no. I understand it. You, you no, came to, no. to run it. Tell me about that. Well, um, 1985, the company got started by a gentleman named Bob Chernay, Robert Chernay. And uh, by, two, by 1990, um, I got on board as a technical field advisor and would be working the helplines and things like that. And by 2000, um, Mr. Chernay decided he wanted to retire and he um, brought us into a, um, a what was called an ESOP program, an employee stock option program. And uh, so he sold the business to to the employees, basically, and um, he he took some of the private stock and some of the uh, he took fifty percent of the stock and put it into ESOP, put the other fifty percent of the stock and distributed to certain people, such as myself, um, that we would then um, run the company, and um, so that was how that got developed, and I became the president of the company. And uh, started to uh, to run it since uh, 2000. Well, we were keen to talk to you because we hear about ESOP from time to time. People talk about it. People throw around that acronym, those letters. Uh, but I know nothing about it. I'm I'm completely ignorant as to how ESOPs work. I mean, I I get the idea of employee ownership and 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 so forth. But the the details, the mechanics of it, I, I'd love to be to explore on this call. So I'm super happy that. Uh, that you've been able to, to to find some time for us. So let's go back. So so Bob, when he sort of decided to retire in two thousand, he put half the shares in in this ESOP, and then half the shares he distributed, as you say, to to senior executives. I'm assuming people mm -hmm. in the company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Got it. 
And when you say put them in, I mean, did he sell them? Did he realize any like monetary gain from selling the shares in that in a, in a traditional way? Well, when when well, those stocks were gifted, but um, and gifted over time um, because he he actually financed the uh, the ESOP portion of the program uh, himself, which meant that he was able to. Um, Developed this um, this offer uh, through uh, certified public accountants and attorneys that had to, all the paperwork had to be drawn up. And as each year would go by, um, the company would actually pay for the stocks, and he would receive that money and was able to put that in tax deferred accounts. And um, and as a result of that. Um, you know, he was able to sell the company without having to um, pay any taxes. Um, and then the um, the stocks would become vested um, as he was um, as he was paying it off. And so all these stocks were actually gifted and given to all these employees. It sounds kind of dodgy. It sounds like a bit of a tax dodge. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was done totally legally. I'm not implying that wasn't it. It was in any way illegal. But the idea that you could, or Bob in this case, could sell his shares over time and not pay tax. I mean, that doesn't sound. Was he like? Did eventually he's got to pay tax on it, doesn't he? Well, what I mean by that is he was able to take the sale of the business and put it in tax deferred funds, like a 401k, if you will. Um, and then of course, once he retired and he started to draw on that and his income was less, he didn't have to pay as much tax. He didn't have to pay the tax on the whole sale of the company um, all at one time. He was able to put it into an account, a retirement account that he could then draw on later and pay tax on it that way. I see. Okay. And again, we've got listeners all over the world, actually. So I'm in Canada where we have different tax laws than you have in the United States. And so people in the UK, different different tax laws. So this is just, this is kind of helpful and excuse the ignorance uh, comments or questions, I should say. But so, so this is helpful. So let's imagine, I know we can't talk about the specific number. Let's imagine the business was worth a million dollars, let's just say. And, and so, uh, you're you're uh, you're basically he is being paid that amount of money over time uh, as the business can sort of afford you know declare profits and can afford to pay that over time. Is that is that how it's working? Well, yeah. In other words, the stock receives a value. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, the company would be appraised and how much stock would be issued and how much. Uh, each stock would be valued at, and then the stocks would be distributed to every individual in relationship to their salary. And uh, so there was a portion set aside. And, and, and as through the years, he would pay that price. Um, so if let's just say there was 10,000 shares of stock um, and he decided to pay this off over a period of three years. So if it's a million dollars, it's 10,000 shares of stock. Divide that three ways. He's got to pay that in a year. 
all that goes into an ESOP fund. It's all in a fund. And it's not like he's putting it in his pocket. the, The money he's paying for it is actually going into a retirement fund. And then that, that, um, that stock becomes vested to the person who's going to receive that stock. Um, and, and so it's a piece of paper. It means that he owns shares and stock. It was, it was given to them um, over a period of time. And so now they become an employee, becomes a part owner. Now, when you're 100% in the United States with this program, how it works, if the company is 100% um, ESOP, then even their corporate taxes are, they don't have to pay tax. There is no tax that needs to be paid. Um, they don't pay tax on on the money that they make. You can stay within the company and uh, and be able to grow the company. The idea is that the the company was valuable enough to keep it um, to keep it growing. Um, and uh, of course, the employees, when they would receive a paycheck, there's taxes being withdrawn for their paycheck. But uh, corporate taxes didn't need to be paid. They, money could stay within the company, and the idea is to grow the company. So you you uh, took over as president in 2000, is that right? Uh, yes. Got it. And so why didn't he move? Did you ever ask him why he didn't move 100% of the company into the ESOP? Why he gave you specific shares as opposed to the ones in the ESOP? Because he wanted to ensure um, that uh, people would remain there and run it so that he also could be paid a pension. Because once he was done with that sale and left, we paid him a monthly pension uh, as well. And did the monthly pension have anything to do with the share value or the, no. the value? Of the, no, that was just- no, no, that was a, a, he had to pay tax on that like a normal paycheck. Got it. Okay. I'm still a little confused, but hopefully you'll you'll uh, I'll get more clear as as we go. So you you take over as the president, and mm-hmm. um, your shareholders are yourself personally, some of your fellow executives, a- along with your rank and file employees. How many employees do you have at this point? With twenty. So are all twenty part of the ESOP? Yes, everyone on the original. Uh, everyone received. Um, ESOP stock. That's correct. Okay. And do they have to pay for that or do they just get it no. granted to them? It's okay. No, it, it, it was, it was given to them. Yes. Okay. Got it. In return, the company declares a profit through the years and that some of that money gets distributed to the ESOP shareholders and That's some exactly. of it to, to Bob, presumably. Well, no, okay. Uh, Bob sold the company for a specific amount of money, uh, and he did not have to pay tax on that. He was able to put it in a retirement account and then be able to draw on that and pay tax in that way. But he also made money by having a pension. Uh, after the company was sold, part of the deal was to pay him a monthly pension. Um, which was also additional money, but that money had nothing to do with ESOP. That was just us paying him a monthly pension. He handed us a company. He handed 20 people a company, so he wanted to get paid for it. 
and he found a way to make it happen where the employees could benefit from it. He could benefit from it. It was a very good deal for him. But an ESOP really is not made for a company as small as this one was. And when you're in an ESOP, the ESOP, the way it's designed, there's really no exit plan. To, to sell an ESOP company is is very um, difficult. Uh, it's um, a lot of laws are involved. There's a lot of things that have to be done. It's very expensive. It's even expensive to keep an ESOP because every year you have to have um, the company evaluated and appraised and um, there's many fingers involved in, in looking at the company, making sure it's run properly, um, understanding its value and the stock value, and all the stockholders get that information. Um, and so it's quite pricey. But in the end, if it is a big company, you're not having to pay corporate taxes. You're able to keep the money into the company and help it grow. So it's a benefit if you have a big company and you want the employees to be a part of that company. Um, um, so there are benefits to it. But when you're as small as ours, uh, it was too much money for that. And, and when the time came where someone decided they were interested in our company, um, it was quite a... Um, quite an ordeal to sell the company. I want to get there in a moment, and, and I don't mean to be obtuse, but I still need to understand how how Bob benefited. So let's imagine, I know we can't talk, but let's imagine the company at that time in 2000 was worth $100 just for fun and, and, and just for round numbers. Let's imagine it's worth $100. He could sell the company to ABC competitor, let's say, and the market value for the company was $100. Instead of doing that, he chose to do what? He, he got he his... The company, he sold the company to us for $50. So, but so the employees had to reach into their own pockets and, and write a check? No, no. The, the stocks um, were paid by ATSG. They each... All right, let's say you got 10 shares of stock. I have 10 shares of stock. Somebody else has 10 shares of stock. It means nothing until it's paid for. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. Okay, but the value that was put on it was $10 a share. Okay. Um, the company would put pay for that stock, put the money in for the value of that stock. And that money went to, to Bob Chernay because it was his company. Over and he time. Was selling it is, over right. time. Got and it. that Got money it. went to, to a Bob Chernay into a, um, a retirement account. How long did it take the company to generate enough cash to pay him off? Not, not, the, not his pension, but the, the actual... Right, right. Yeah, it took like about three years. Um, okay. Him. Yeah. I th I think my small pea brain is starting to get the the idea now. I'm I'm pretty clear on it. Okay, so you get into this situation where you're running this thing. Uh, you've got 20 employees, all of whom are kind of stakeholders in one way, shape, or form. Tell me how the ESOP um, affected the way you manage the company after you'd paid off the the Bob uh, the Bob after you paid off Bob and the shares were paid off after those three years how did how did it uh, impact the way you ran the company? 
Well, um, it was quite an interesting transition to be one of the employees among the others to actually being the president and overseeing the employees. So um, there was a, a little bit of friction there in the beginning, why some, why myself and not them or something like that. Um, so there was a lot of things that we had to address. Um, Bob Trenet, um his idea was to um, give people golden handcuffs to keep them there. And um, health insurance was one of the benefits that people received. And health insurance was continuing to climb and getting out of control. So there was a lot of things that we needed to do to reorganize the company and uh, the kind of expenses that we were dealing with and and some of the in-house things. So we needed to develop a, a, a real good in-house uh, relationship uh, among everyone and everyone understanding now that they were part owners of the company and that they needed to take interest in it. Being a part owner of the company doesn't necessarily mean that everyone can show up to work at nine o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning and leave at two in the afternoon. It, it wasn't like that. They still had a job to do. They still had a function to perform. And, and of course, the reward would be if we're all working together, um, uh, the benefits would be there at the end of the year. Uh, we would see a profit and that profit could be shared. And you, as the president, I'm assuming, tell me if I'm wrong, had to decide what portion of that profit at the end of the year needed to be reinvested back in the company versus distributed to the shareholders. Is that right? Yeah. Myself and the the uh, woman who has also received part of the uh, uh, stock, private stock, uh, was our financial officer. And uh, so together we would reevaluate those things. How did it impact, how did being a shareholder impact the employees in the company, their work ethic, their behavior as employees? Well, uh, uh, in the beginning, um, um, it, uh, it took on a nice um, direction. Um, but then after five years or so, um, you know, people just still get into their routine of things and uh, they felt more like their job was more secure um, than um, than if they weren't a stockholder and started to relax a little bit. And so were they right in assuming that as a, as an ESOP member, as a stockholder, they their jobs were more secure? They weren't able to be? reprimanded no, quite so easily? No, no, no. That, that's just a false uh, uh, perception. Got it. So they felt like, hey, this, you know, I'm a shareholder. My job is safe. Uh, but in reality, that the two things are separate, their performance on yeah, the job. Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. I think that that makes it make sense to me. Were you able to declare dividends? Like were the were the stockholders over time being being paid a dividend each year for their stock ownership? Yeah, we um, that's that's we would distribute profits at the end of the year if we had them. That's what we do. Yes. And what proportion of their say salary would I'm trying to get a sense? We don't have to get into specifics, but it, would it be like? 10% of their salary, 50% of their salary, 2%, like this, it, it would be helpful to have a frame of reference broadly about what proportion of their salary they would be earning 
in in sort of dividends each year? Well, um, you know, the, the 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 stocks were distributed proportionally to um, the uh, salaries that everyone had initially. So, um, if someone had ten shares of stock and someone had a hundred shares of stock, and we made um, ten thousand dollar profit, we would share that ten thousand dollars equally per share. And so the person who has 10 shares is going to have less and the person who has 100 shares would have more um, because it was equally distributed based on shares per stock. You know, I get that. I'm just trying to understand uh, for a rank and file employee of the company, was the, the dividends in the years that they were provided, um, was it kind of like, a, hey, that's a nice, you know, like I could take my spouse out for dinner this weekend kind of thing? Or was it like a substantial part of their compensation? Oh, uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't as substantial. In the beginning, the years were. But um, as the years went by, the business was more difficult. Um, uh, it was more challenging because the um, the industry is changing and technical support uh, was being challenged. Um, people don't like to pay for tech. They like to Google and they like to look at YouTube. Um, they like to find different ways to, to obtain technical data. Um, and so as the years went on, prices gone up, uh, but income has, was more challenging. So, you know, it was a, it was a challenging time. And what was the kind of triggering event that caused you to want to sell the company? Well, actually, I, I, I really, um, really wasn't thinking so much about selling. I was always thinking about how to our, – our income was based on subscribership, seminar attendance, book sales. Um, and so we were – constantly thinking of different ways to broaden our income base and uh, a variety of different ways of doing things um, and looking actually for partnership um, to be able to um, take things to another level. Uh, so that was, that was in view, never thought about selling. And, um, so that's what made the sale of this quite interesting because it uh, it was a real good deal for all involved, and um, uh, I'm happy we did it. So tell me about how it came about. So you're out there looking for partnerships. You're running the business as an ESOP. What was what was the next step? How did ETE get involved? Well, and, and this was um, quite unique in that um, I was doing a trade show in Chicago called the Auto Mechanica Show and uh, had, a, had a booth there. And just a couple gentlemen came up to the booth and as usual, we talked and explained our services, handed business cards. And uh, that took place in, in uh, July of uh, 2017. And um, it was in November of 2017, I received an email that said, you know, hey, Wayne, uh, 
we'd like for you to come up and take a look at our company and let's see what we can do about how you can help us and we can help you. And, uh, and it was this company, ETE Reman, and uh, I didn't really know them. Um, and it was a very upbeat, very positive email and looked exciting. And, Did you uh, know it was a failed you know, acquisition offer? No, no, this was not, had, didn't have any of that in, in mind. It was, it was like, let's see what we can do to help each other. And, uh, um, uh, because they, they had a, uh, remanufacturing facility. Um, and of course we had technical data, technical resources, uh, technical talent. And, um, um, and, and so we wanted to see, or they wanted to see what could develop. And, okay, so uh, let's let's talk about what ETE Reman stands. So the company is ETE Reman, standing for ETE Remanufacturing. I understand mm-hmm. for lay people like myself uh, who struggle with refilling the windshield wiper fluids. So let's just keep this on a very <laughs> simple terms. <laughs> what is remanufacturing a transmission like? Under what circumstances would you need to remanufacture a transmission? Well, when they wear out. Um, you rebuild them. Um, uh, they actually um, produce about five, six thousand transmissions a month um, of various types, and uh, so it's quite a quite a facility. And they sell them. So you might want to go to an auto repair shop, and if your car is quite old, they could say, "Look, you need to your your transmission is shot. We need to send it away to be remanufactured." Is that kind of what would happen? Oh, well, it's, uh, you could just buy one. Um, you know, you could buy the transmission. Um, right. A lot, a lot of transmission shops, um, you know, if, if they only have one rebuilder uh, and suddenly they have more work in a week than one rebuilder can handle, um, they can choose to decide which ones they would like to rebuild themselves and, and then buy Re, already rebuilt transmission and be able to get the work out done, uh, get the work out and done in, in a week's time. Whereas with just one rebuilder, it might take several weeks. Okay, so uh, if I'm if I'm make, if I'm kind of getting this straight, I've got my 2005 Honda Pilots way beyond past the uh, uh, the warranty. Um, I and the transmission goes. I take it to an auto repair shop. The auto repair guy has three choices, if I understand it correctly. He could personally remanufacture the transmission, although that would take time and complexity. He may not have the skills to do it or the manpower on, on site. Two, he could buy a brand new transmission from Honda, which would cost a fortune, presumably, if in fact they 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 still stock it. Or three, he could buy a remanufactured transmission. Am I getting that roughly right? Uh, yeah. Um- yeah, it's remanufactured is already rebuilt. You're just buying a rebuilt transmission to have put in your car. And uh, yes, as far as buying a brand new one from OE, it's going to be quite a bit more money. O- OE being original equipment manufacturer like yeah. Honda mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. okay, so ETE Reman, I think I get the co- concept roughly. Their customers are similar to yours then, mostly auto repair centers. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And what did they see in you as you started to have these conversations about potential partnerships? Like, why did they eventually turn to the discussion of potentially acquiring you guys? 
Well, um, they too have uh, a customer base um, where when you send a transmission out and give it to someone, uh, sometimes when you put it in, it doesn't work. And it doesn't mean the transmission is bad. Um, and so they need needed to be able to support their product with um, uh, with technical resources that can make the determination as to whether or not that transmission really does have a problem inside of it. Um, or is it something in the vehicle that's causing the transmission to malfunction? A wheel speed sensor can make a transmission not shift. Um, wrong tire sizes can make the transmission have odd shift behaviors. Bad brake bulbs can make the transmission malfunction. Um, uh, mass airflow sensors can take a transmission uh, and make it shift hard or soft and burn out. Uh, there's a there's, whole bunch of reasons. I, I, yeah. I got it. Yeah. It, it's, mm -hmm. I'm never going to get back in my car after this conversation, right? You're freaking me out completely. <laughs> All right. So uh, ETE looks at you guys and says, ATSG is, is almost like, uh, you know, it, it really emboldens our or beefs up our support desk, if you will. And, and is that what they sort of saw in you? How did the conversation then progress from there? At what point did they raise the issue of potentially acquiring you? Well, um, I went up in November and um, I got to meet the people. They're real, real nice people, good people. And uh, um, walked around the factory and was watching things and seeing things and we did a lot of discussions uh, talking about how their how their business functions and what they do and understanding sales and uh, understanding warranty um, and the processes involved in how they rebuild these transmissions and uh, so we went back and forth, and, and um, I offered up um, some ideas that I had that I saw that could help improve um, certain aspects of supporting their products on the technical hotline and, and uh, many other things, and installation guides, and, and, uh, and, and also the building processes and um, and it, there was quite a bit of synergy. I mean, it was um, uh, it was for exciting. And um, so the owner of the company said, you know, what, would you consider the idea of joining on? Um, and of course, I I said, well, I, it's exciting, I, but I can't make that decision myself. Uh, just to be clear, Wayne, joining, joining joining the term "joining on" sounds like he's offering you a job. To to be clear, did you well, know at the time that that he wanted no, to buy no, you guys? No, he said, you know, "Can we buy your company?" Got it. Okay. But, but, yeah. And did did he put a number on paper at that point, or well, no. what, what stage did no. it get formalized? No, no. the The first thing that happened was um, I said, "Well, that's that's inviting, but I have to ask." all the stockholders, I explained to him that we were ESOP and uh, that we had to, um, we had to vote on it. Right. Uh, and this is, I got to believe this is like herding cats with all these shareholders trying to get them all to agree on something. Was that, what was that like? Actually, that was, uh, everyone was excited about it. They, let's do it. Interesting. So the offer was 
put to you guys. I know we can't talk about the actual price, but the offer was put to the group and the reaction was was favorable. Everybody mm-hmm. could yeah. finally mm-hmm. see this mm-hmm. this monetization of the stock holdings that they have had for some time, it sounds like. Out of interest, was there a how did new people who joined the company after um everybody had been issued stock, how were they treated? Were they also invited into the ESOP? You mean before um the this purchase is what you're asking? No, I, yes, I yes, I am. I, I mean uh, you know, after Bob initially sort of set up the ESOP, uh, you know, people that were hired after the initial allocation to each employee, were they also given shares in the ESOP? Uh, well, yeah, because um, uh, there are some people that did leave and um, we would pay their stock when they, that's another process. Um, and paying out a stock, but people have left paid stock, so there was stock to offer. Um, and uh, so when people would come on after a year, um, they would be issued some stock. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful for sure. And so take me through so you, you get the acquisition offer um, from ETE. You said that the the ESOP membership was favorable to her. Were there any dissenters among the group? No. Everybody was on board. Mm-hmm. And, and did you, how did you feel about the, the price being offered? Well, there was not a price put on the table up front. It was um, first, uh, first the, was say, can we do this? And I said, well, let's, First, go back and, and see if everyone's interested in moving forward on the matter. Um, so we all got together and talked about it. Everyone was for it. So in order for um, for us to take the next step, uh, we discussed numbers. Um, we you know got involved in looking at our finances, and um, a number was uh, put on the table. It was accepted. And it was bought. And so you guys came up with a, a price you wanted for the company and shared that with ET as the first step. Uh, well, yes, yes, uh, and because we already knew what it was that we we had, um, so yeah, it, it worked out that way. And they, but they they actually paid more. Um, How do they end up paying more? Um, they they did it in such a way where uh, not only did they um, take care of paying more, but um, they um, also um, wanted to retain each individual. So they gave each individual um, a sign-on bonus. That's helpful because, of course, they're going from being a stock owner in ATSG to being just a kind of employee of ET Reman, and therefore Reman, they wanted to put together some sort of bonus to keep keep them along the way. Makes sense. So originally, you'd said that you thought that an ESOP may not be the best approach for a very small company; that there were some limitations um, to an ESOP 
that that were somewhat unique to to a, a, a somewhat small company. Maybe describe, if you could, some of those limitations. Well, um, like I mentioned before, um, uh, or should I say, you brought up a, an interesting point about other employees coming in and do they get stock? People leave. Um, you're constantly paying for the stock over and over again. Somebody leaves, you have to pay them. If someone comes in, they get stock. Um, it's cost quite a bit of money um, to have your stocks uh, evaluated um, every year. Uh, it's real pricey for a small company. And, and again, it's really not designed for selling a company. It's, it's what it costs in attorney fees, what it costs in accounting fees. Um, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, Is it fair to say you have to get a you have to get a valuation done every year? Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, and and so th that valuation, how did the valuation get calculated? Was it on a multiple of membership revenue, or was it a multiple of profit? Like, how did what was the metric they used to value the company? Well, um, yeah, they they looked at everything. They um, looked at how all the different ways that you would make your money and. Um, they would take into consideration uh, maybe you had uh, an expense that was a one-time expense and it really didn't have an issue on uh, on the profit at the end of the year. It was an unusual expense. Um, they would look at projections, you know, what are you doing to grow the company? What do you expect is going to happen? I mean, it was, it was um, always every year. It was a million questions looked at uh, every square inch of the company, and then they would value the stock. And you said that the transaction took place, I guess, in early 2018? Uh, the actual purchase of the company took place in August of 2018. Got it. And, and when was the last valuation that the CPA firm did prior to the acquisition? Would that have been done at the end of the calendar year 2017? Well, in this particular case, we had to get it done for the sale. Ah, I see. I see. And and so you did that. They came up with a number. And was that the number that you asked ETE Reman to yeah. pay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. How? What was the difference between the number that you came up with for the purposes of the acquisition and the most recent year valuation you did just for the purposes of making sure you're up, you're you're compliant with the ESOP regulations? I'm wondering if those two numbers were uh, like what the difference between them was. Um, not not much at all. No. So. Okay, so you'd had it done a year ago, and it was relatively flat, when, but you had to do it again for the purposes of this, this transaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for other founders thinking about going through this process of, of exiting, potentially going through an ESOP as a potential exit uh, route versus you know, selling it to a third party? You've gone through it now. What, what, what would you say? That's a tough question. Um... Uh, if you're saying, how do you take the whole company as an out or as an individual as an out? Uh, well, I, taking think, the I whole, think, you know, obviously as an individual, you can just 
retire from the company and let someone take over. Uh, as far as ending the company, um, <laughs> it's cheaper to just let it go out of business. <laughs> Why do you say that? Less, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, to to sell the company, an ESOP company, a small one, I'm talking small, um, with the amount of attorney fees that are involved and uh, accounting fees that are involved, um, uh, the process that's involved, it's it's a drawn out process. It's a challenging process. It's a difficult process. Financially, it's very expensive. And um, um, it's, it's, they make it very difficult, very difficult. And you have to make sure you have the right attorneys and, and you have the right people in place because it's quite amazing to find out how many attorneys really don't know uh, the right process. Um, and, uh, um, so you really need to make sure that you have the right people in place, um, and that you're informed ahead of time about what it takes, uh, to actually close a company that, that is ESOP, what it actually takes. And, uh, a lot of things came up that we weren't aware of, um, that was a surprise to us, that was challenging. Um, and so, uh, uh, if you were an ESOP owner of a small company, you really would want to have uh, some good counseling uh, and advice uh, to walk you through it. So let's go through the sequence of events again. So uh, you get this valuation done. It comes up with a number. You present that to ETE. They agree and also add a little bit of a sweetener in in a, in a signing bonus for uh, your former employer, ATSG employees to become part of ETE Reman. Um, I'm assuming that those expenses, the attorney's fees, the legal fees, and so forth, I'm assuming they are charged to the ESOP as a as a as an expense of this transaction. Is that so that the employees are are given? Um, their compensation for their shares after the expenses of, of the ESOP uh, the, of the sale have been executed. Is that fair? Well, well, okay. Um, what what we what you do is you um, you have to fund the ESOP, uh, meaning that at the end of the year or through the year, you fund the ESOP. You put money in the ESOP account, um, and that money is set. Aside, you can't touch it. It's there. It's only for uh, paying stock should someone leave, and you don't touch that money. Um, so expenses have to be taken out of your working capital. Um, that money that you have not put in to the ESOP uh, account. So the expenses of the transaction were were not incurred by the individual ESOP members. Is that correct? That, yeah, that was taken out of the working, you know, the monies that were in ATSG um, that we would use to conduct business with. Um, but what money you have in the ESOP program belongs to ESOP people. Got it. Six or nine months in, now that the transaction is now finalized and and you're all sort of uh, employees of ETE Reman, how do how do former ATSG employees feel about the journey 
and and the sale ultimately uh, kind of nine months later now that the the sort of honeymoon is over and things have sort of settled in what what are some of the things feeling people have um well um i think um, um <clears throat> the there's still in a certain degree of excitement involved it's just that the first this the the purchase really took place in august so um um uh, and so the first year, the idea was to not change much of anything, um, to keep everything status quo, everyone doing what they normally do. Uh, they were, we weren't into just trying to change everything. We wanted everyone to be comfortable uh, knowing that they have a job and, and that their job is you know, doing what they do. Um, and whatever changes that we're going to be making will will happen in time um, and slowly and uh, and all for the improvement of the benefits that we can offer our members and things like that. So the first year, we really haven't seen much of anything. It's still like coming to work like we normally do. Well, it's a great story. And again, I appreciate you sharing it with our listeners, in particular those that are interested in potentially going down the ESOP route. Um, I know, Wayne, people are going to be keen to, to reach out. Is there a, a best way for people to reach out to you? Do, you? do you accept sort of LinkedIn connections or is there uh, a way that people can reach out to you if they wanted to, uh, to say hi? Um, well, I do have a LinkedIn account. That's the only thing I have. Uh, I don't have a Facebook account. Wayne Colonna, C O L O N A, if I'm getting it correct. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Yep. On LinkedIn. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.